Good morning to everyone. Would you please take God's Word and turn with me to two passages of Scripture. To begin with, the book of Proverbs, chapter 3. The book of Proverbs, chapter 3. And secondly, the book of James, chapter 3. You might have noticed in his pastoral prayer, uh, Gary prayed for Martin Sexton as she uh, will be moving. That might have come as a surprise to some of you, but uh, let me just announce it now and make it official that Martin will, will be moving to uh, North Carolina uh, next weekend. How long have you been a member here now? Two or three years, more or less? My apologies, the years just melt one into another. But we're going to miss uh, her presence with us, and uh, we trust the Lord will go before you and prepare the way and uh, be with you during this time of transition, and most importantly, lead you to a, a local expression of the body of Christ where, Martin, you will continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord richly bless you in your coming move. Have you found Proverbs chapter 3 and James chapter 3? Okay, we'll just hold your horses. We'll get there in a minute. Uh, we witnessed something wonderful this morning, uh, the baptism of three young ladies, Marley, Tessa, and Grace. And I don't want to allow the opportunity to escape me without saying at least a few words about baptism and what it means, how important it is, and as I just stated, how wonderful, how wonderful it is. Uh, instituted by the Lord Jesus, and a celebration of the Lord Jesus, and a public celebration of the Lord Jesus. Something we do as a local church. And for those of us who have already been baptized, maybe a year ago, five years ago, 10, 20, 30, 40, do I hear 50, 60, and counting years ago, um, this is something we still participate in. Yes, we were baptized. It's a historical past event. But even as we witness these three ladies, uh, their baptism this day, uh, we who are Christians participate in it. And we are corporately, collectively uh, declaring a number of precious truths. Let me just rhyme off three or four. First is this. We, we are declaring who God is. And so in the words of Matthew 28, and you heard Brian, as Brian baptized these three, you heard him utter these words each time. Matthew 28, where the Lord Jesus declared, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And so at baptism, we are declaring who God is. We are declaring that he only has one name, not names. He only has one name. His name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are unapologetically differentiating ourselves from every other religion on the face of this earth. 
We do not worship the same God as the Muslims. We do not worship the same God as the Jews. We do not worship the same God as any other religion going. We worship God triune. This God has a name, and His name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as Christians, we are celebrating the Father's election of us before the foundation of the world. The Son's redemption through His blood of us, a historical event when He offered Himself upon Calvary's cross. And the Spirit's renewing, regenerating, birthing of us when He entered into our lives and gave us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the first thing we're declaring. Who God is. Secondly, we're declaring what Christ has done. Romans 6. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So very important. The repetition is very important. The symbolism is highly significant. Entering into water. Emerging from water. Entering into water. Emerging from water. Entering into water. Emerging from water. The entrance into the water declaring what? Our union with Christ in his death, his crucifixion, and his burial. And emerging from water, our declaration of what? That we have indeed been raised to newness of life by virtue of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are declaring what Christ has done. We are declaring the only means of salvation. We are declaring that Christ, as he himself proclaimed, is the way and the truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through Him. We are declaring the gospel, the good news of salvation, that for all who come to God through the Lord Jesus and come in repentance and through faith, simply receiving Christ and believing in Him, are welcomed by the Father and made part of His family. Thirdly, we declare. We declare our faith in Christ. Peter declares. He, he writes it. Uh, his epistle, first epistle, chapter 3, verse 21. Don't let the words trip you up. I'll explain them in just a moment. But there he writes, baptism saves you. His words, 1 Peter 3. You can check them out later, 1 Peter 3, 21. Baptism saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Brian, perhaps he consciously did this or unwittingly did this, but he expounded the verse wonderfully as he led us in those baptisms when he likened baptism to the wedding ring he placed on Laura's finger all those years ago. Uh, they were wed. Alice and I were wed. With this ring, I thee wed. The ring didn't marry us. Didn't marry them. The ring didn't make us married. The ring simply symbolized the reality of that marriage. So too it is with baptism. Baptism now saves you. Not baptism in and of itself. The act as if something magical were taking place. But baptism, what it symbolizes, 
that we have declared our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and we are now appealing to God for a good conscience, appealing to God for forgiveness on the basis of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Fourthly, finally, simply, at baptism we declare that we have put on Christ. And so hear what Paul pens in Galatians chapter 3. In Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so these three young ladies have put on Christ. And they have just symbolized it by going through the waters of baptism. They are now declaring, these three and all of us who've been baptized, we are proclaiming that we're something akin to a mirror. I'm a mirror, a two-sided mirror. And when I look at one side of the mirror, I do not like what I see. I don't like it a bit. I see my sin. All right? I see my filth. And I see all that is displeasing in God's sight, me. But as I turn the mirror over and I look at the other side, who do I behold? The Lord Jesus Christ. I, a sinner, have put on Christ. I am now a justified sinner. Not my merit, not my works, not that I've earned it, not that I'm a particularly special person or good person or nice person. No, I know that I am a sinner, a child of wrath in the sight of God. But coming to Him through faith in Christ, I have put on Christ. And now God sees me in Christ. Now I am just because I am one with the just one. I'm a saint right here, folks. I'm a saint. The Bible says it. Why? Because I am one with the Holy One. And I am now beloved, a child of God. Why? Because I am one with the Beloved. I have put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so how encouraging. Marley, Tessa, Grace. How encouraging for us to witness this, your baptism this day. And our prayers for you, our prayers for us as a church, all of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, is now by His grace, by His mercy, we might walk together in a manner worthy of our high calling in Christ Jesus seeking to please Him in every aspect of our lives, bearing fruit and growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's baptism. It's wonderful. Perhaps that doesn't pertain to you. You've never been baptized. For that matter, you're quite certain you've never put your faith in Christ. Well, you've heard the gospel already today. You've seen the gospel in living color proclaimed. That the gospel is simply this, the good news of salvation, oh, it is crystal clear. God is holy, you are not. Therefore, you have a problem. But God makes reconciliation through the blood of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He commands sinners everywhere to turn from their sin and to come to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, through faith, and become one with Christ 
whereby you experience reconciliation with God, peace with God, forgiveness of sins, and the hope of eternal life. Now, have you found the book of Proverbs? You've forgotten all about it, haven't you? Proverbs chapter 3. But we're not going to start there. You also found the book of James chapter 3. I invite you to focus in on one single solitary verse, 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Anyone, anyone want to put their hand up? Anyone like to stand up? You could just come gather here, a holy huddle at the front. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The thought does not stop there. I feel badly on one hand. I'm interrupting it because it does not stop there. It continues to the end of the chapter, the 18th verse. And so from the 14th verse to the 18th verse, James draws a very sharp contrast between two kinds of wisdom. In verses 14, 15, 16, he describes wisdom from below, below. And then in verse 17 and 18, he describes wisdom from above. We'll get there. Next Lord's Day, Lord's Supper, we're going to turn to Psalm 8. When we come back after that, so this will be the second, third Sundays in February, we'll come back to these verses and we'll consider wisdom from below, wisdom from above, and we'll focus on three questions. Where does it come from? Wisdom from below, wisdom from above. I've just given you the answer. Where does it come from? What does it look like? And how does it affect us? That's where James is going. There's a little preview. But all we're doing right now is wetting our foot, so to speak, by stepping into the 13th verse and wrestling with this question as he puts it out there. Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And here is what we're going to do. You've already guessed it if you've taken a look at the sermon notes in the worship guide. I'm going to give you seven marks of wisdom. I want to say, let me rephrase it. I want to say seven things about wisdom. I want to make seven points. Several of these points I'm going to draw from the 13th verse. The remainder of the points, I'm just going to the testimony of Scripture elsewhere. But my goal is straightforward. I want us to have a very clear snapshot of what James means by this word. James is saturated in the Old Testament. James is saturated in the wisdom literature. The book of Job, the book of Psalms, the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Proverbs. So when he throws out there this word wisdom, there's a whole lot riding on this term. It is a term infused by his understanding of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. 
And so I want to say these seven things, and this will serve, I pray, as an introduction. I trust it will serve as a challenge, perhaps, to some, an encouragement to others, edifying for all, and then certainly serve us well a couple of Sundays from now as we proceed into the remaining verses in chapter 3. So here we go. Seven things I want us to know about this wisdom. Number one, wisdom is important. It's important. Now you found the book of Proverbs, didn't you? And you found chapter 3. Take a look with me at a couple of verses out of Proverbs, chapter 3. I'm thinking primarily of what we read beginning in verse 13. Blessed. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be satisfied? Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her, that is wisdom, is better than gain from silver. And her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels. And nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness. And all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. It's important. We're in Proverbs. Let's just stay there for a moment. Flip over a few pages to chapter 8. And there we read something similar. The words are slightly different, but the emphasis exactly the same. Proverbs 8, verse 34. Blessed. There's that word again. Blessed is the one who listens to me. Who's speaking? Wisdom. Wisdom is speaking. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. You get the point? It's not an understatement, is it? Wisdom is important. It is important. Why? Because it is the difference, simply put, between life and death. The first thing I want to say, I pray we get it. We are speaking of something of utmost paramount importance. Second thing I want to say is this. Wisdom is practical. Back to our verse in James 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Personally, I find that surprising. I find it surprising that James doesn't mention any of the things I usually attach with to or associate with wisdom. He does not mention degrees or diplomas. He doesn't mention ability 
or aptitude. He says nothing of books or treatises. And he says nothing of libraries or academies. I pray we get this. It is possible to complete a PhD without being wise. I've met lots of them. It is possible to complete a PhD without being wise. It is possible to be an accomplished judge, lawyer, doctor, without being wise. It is possible to be a renowned physicist or mathematician without being wise. It is possible to hold public office, I'm going to say this and then move on, without being wise. I have to say something. It is more than possible. It is very probable, sadly, in our day and age. Here it is, wisdom. Wisdom is moral, not intellectual. Did you get that? Biblical wisdom is moral, not intellectual. Biblical wisdom is practical, not theoretical. It is why in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus wraps up the entire sermon with these words. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, and does them, acts upon them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Oh, it is practical. It is practical, not theoretical. It is moral, not intellectual. Third thing I want us to get about wisdom is this. It is uncommon. It is exceedingly uncommon in our day. Not only is it exceedingly common, but any remnant of wisdom is quickly dissipating in our day. It is rather unnerving. What I just said is a hard sale. Uh, if I put that out there, we're not very wise. You know, if I were to put that out there on Facebook, I'm guessing from a number of, of my friends, I'd get an awful lot of pushback. What do you mean we're not wise? You see, we live in a day that has deemed itself enlightened. Right? We live in a day, we live in an age, and are part of a society that functions on this premise, but the premise is wrong. We are advancing. We've actually come farther than we once were. The reason our society thinks like this is because it confuses wisdom with technological advancement. It confuses the two, but one has nothing to do with the other. We can communicate using cell phones. We can access a vast quantity of information via the internet. We can travel halfway around the world in a matter of hours. We can transplant hearts and kidneys. We can build bridges that traverse the waters below and towers that reach the clouds above. We can send spacecraft to Mars to take pictures. We can harness the power of wind and water and we can harness the energy of an atom. Technological advancement, technological wonders, and they are wonders, but they do not equal wisdom. 
Man's predicament. God's sentence itself. Confessing or professing or claiming to be wise. Right there in Romans 1. They have become, they have become fools. And yet we deceive ourselves with all of this technological advancement and gadgetry and wonders and developments and everything else. We deceive ourselves into thinking we are advanced. We are enlightened. We are wise. But in actual fact, the biblical testimony is the direct opposite. Wisdom is very, very, very uncommon. Fourth thing I want us to understand about wisdom is this. It is rooted in the fear of God. Rooted in the fear of God. Now, I said this in the the introduction. I hope you picked up on it. That James is not writing in a vacuum. James is not simply snatching things out of the air. James is not some sort of philosopher who's arrived on the scene and is reinventing the wheel. No, James is part of a tradition. James has been schooled. James has been immersed in the scriptures. And he has been immersed in particular, again, in the wisdom literature. And the great central chief main message of the wisdom literature, and I might even add what I perceive to be the great central main chief message of the entire Old Testament is this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is repeated throughout Scripture, and the truth of it is demonstrated throughout Scripture, and the opposite of it is demonstrated very clearly throughout Scripture that where there is no fear of the Lord, the result is foolishness, unbelievable foolishness. But David testifies this to the Psalms. In the Psalms, Solomon testifies to this in the Proverbs. Job testifies to this in his book, his experience. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is no wisdom without fear. This is the door. All right? We have this, I don't know, it's a house, a castle, whatever you want. This structure. And there is the door. It is the only way in. If you don't go in the door, what's inside is wisdom. A life of wisdom. The way of the wise. There's only one door through into it. Access by which we gain that wisdom. And the Bible makes it perfectly clear. That door, that access point is the fear of God. The fear of God. Now, what do we mean by the fear of God? We need to be very careful here. In the Bible, we read of two different kinds of fear. The Bible makes this very clear. That there are two different ways in which to fear God. Two different ways in which to fear Him. There is what the Bible likens to the fear that a servant has for his master. That's one way. And the fear that a son has for his father. That's another way. You see, the fear a servant or slave has for his master is a fear based on what? A perceived threat. My master is going to get me. Or my master is going to harm me. Or my master's going to do ill to me. And really the fear that the servant has for the master is a fear that would quickly disappear 
if the servant could get out from under the control of his master. As a matter of fact, we could take it one step further. The fear that the servant has for his master is actually grounded on hatred. Hatred. Because my master is just a perceived threat. My master is out to get me. That, according to Scripture, is an ungodly fear. But you see, the fear that a son has for his father is a fear rooted not in hatred, but in what? Love. Yes, he perceives his father's greatness. Yes, he worries about incurring his father's displeasure. But the son is driven by love for his father and what he has perceived to be his father's goodness, whereby now he stands in fear of him, in awe of him, in reverence toward him. We have them both displayed at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. Because in Exodus chapter 20, you have the children of Israel having come out of the land of Egypt. And there they are at the base of Sinai, and they are about to receive the law, and the theocracy is about to be established. The glory of the Lord appears on the mount. And what do they see? Smoke. Fire. Now, what do they hear? Trumpet blast. There's also lightning flashing across the sky, and the entire mountain is trembling. They are filled with? Fear. So Moses says to them, you can look it up, Exodus 20, verse 20. He says to them, do not fear. Do not fear. The glory of the Lord has come among you that you might fear him and sin not. It's the same word. Do not fear. The glory of the Lord has come among you that you might fear him. Make up your mind, please, Moses. Are we supposed to fear him or not fear him? Two kinds of fear. That first fear, the children of Israel, their knees are knocking, and there they see the glory of the Lord. They fear. Why? Simply because they view God as a perceived threat. He's a monster. He's somebody who might get us. We fear him. We wish he would go away. It is actually a fear grounded upon hatred. Moses, don't fear God like that. His glory has come among you that you might fear him, that you might perceive, yes, his glory, his majesty, and in particular, his power, the glory of his power, the glory of his knowledge, the glory of his goodness, and you might fear him as a son fears his father, that you sin not. There's the difference. You see, an ungodly fear never makes any difference in anybody's life. But a godly fear is transformative. It leads to confession of sin. It leads to a desire for for holiness. It, it, It leads to a desire for God, a delight in God. And it leads, it culminates in a rejection of self, our own will, and this overwhelming desire to know and to do the will of our Father. Uh, James knows it because Scripture testifies to it. Uh, This fear, this fear is the beginning of wisdom. There is no wisdom until you've been there, friend. There is no wisdom. There is not any growth or even any entrance into 
What James is describing, that which is practical as opposed to theoretical, that which is moral as opposed to intellectual, this just cannot happen, this just cannot exist, this kind of wisdom, until there is a true reckoning with and understanding of who God is. Until God draws near and we perceive His power as it is revealed and declared in His Word unrivaled power. As we perceive his knowledge and knowledge of all that was, is, and ever will be. And as we perceive something of his goodness, a goodness that James has focused on earlier in the epistle when he declared every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the father of lights, in whom there is no variation nor shifting shadow. Do you know this God? Do you know this God as he has made himself known in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know this God and his power and wisdom and goodness as poured out upon Calvary's cross? Do you understand this God? Do you fear him? Well, that, my friend, is the starting point, the launching pad, the beginning of wisdom. Fourth thing, fifth thing I want us to understand is this. Wisdom is marked by meekness. James says it, verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Because when we catch a glimpse of God, the result is meekness. You remember Moses, the most meek man on the face of the earth, Right? Well, there's a man who had seen the glory of the Lord. Meekness leads, or rather meekness is the result of a high view of God. A high view of God leads to a sober view of self. Paul writes in Romans 12, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but we are to think of ourselves with sober judgment. Oh, a high view of God, the fear of the Lord, leads to a sober view of self. And a high view of God leads to a generous view of others. Very generous view of others. Philippians 2. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. There's meekness. And that is a mark, a, a, a clearly identifiable mark of wisdom. Here's the sixth thing I want to say. Wisdom is displayed in conduct. The question Who is wise and understanding among you? The answer, by his memorization of entire books of the Bible. It's a good thing. It's a great thing. Please do not misunderstand me. It's not what it says. Who is wise and understanding among you? Well, by his ability to unravel complex doctrines. Let him show it forth. That too is important. But it's not what James says. 
Who is wise and understanding among you? Well, by his, his ability to, to, to shed light on complex theological issues, let him show it forth. It's not what James says. Who is wise and understanding among you? Well, by his, his facility at quoting from Jonathan Edwards or someone else, let him show it forth. It's not what James says. James does not take us down the road of the intellectual. He takes us down the road of the practical, the moral. By his good conduct, let him show his, there's that word, we can't get away from it. It's reminiscent of chapter two, isn't it? By his works in the meekness of wisdom. And what works, what good conduct does James have primarily in view? Go back to chapter one. Let me remind you of this yet again. The big trilogy in verses 26 and 27. There are other works. Let's not, let's not deny that or forget that. There are plenty of other works. There are plenty of other passages of Scripture to which we could turn to answer that question. But James has these three ever before him. A bridled tongue, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. That's the first work. The second work, a compassionate heart, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And the third piece of fruit or the third work that makes up this good conduct, right at the end of verse 27, an unstained life to keep oneself unstained from the world. So go back to James 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his bridal tongue. Let him show it. Let him show his compassionate heart. Let it be evident to all. Let him show his unstained life in the meekness of wisdom. Oh, wisdom is displayed in conduct because it is practical and it is moral. Here's the seventh thing I want to say in conclusion. Wisdom is found in Christ. Wisdom is found in Christ. And so the Apostle Paul declares in his epistle to the Colossians, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now we could unpack that in many ways. Earlier I quoted John 14, right? The Lord Jesus himself making it clear, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That statement of necessity means the following. Christ is God's way and only way. Christ is God's truth and only truth. And Christ is God's life and only life. And in God's way, in God's truth, in God's life as revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we find, we encounter wisdom. Oh, let's end where we began. And where do we begin? In the tank behind us. And there we saw the reality of what I just said, did we not? 
that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that our access to wisdom, the fount of wisdom, God's way, God's truth, God's life, it is all there in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is all there for those who come to Him in saving faith, turning from their sin, approaching God through the one mediator, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Wisdom is important. It is practical. It is uncommon. It is rooted in the fear of God. It is marked by meekness. It is displayed in conduct. And it is found in Christ. Let me end with James' question. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Our Father, we pray that as your Spirit works among us, through us, and in us, that you would impart understanding, understanding of your Word, and comprehension of the truth it contains. And we pray, our Father, that you would aid us also in our application inclining our hearts to your word, to know you, to know your will, and to do it. We ask this for the furtherance of your kingdom among us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.